Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Daniel Milton. Daniel is a lecturer in physical education and sport coaching in the Cardiff School of Sport. He's also one of the senior rugby coaches within the Cardiff Metropolitan Rugby Squad and is currently the WRU Nationals under-18s attack coach. He's currently working with Birmingham University and Sport Wales on a collaborative research product around motivation and empowering principles. So welcome on the show, Daniel. Thanks very much for having me. Really excited to be here. So before we delve into the, the topic today, Daniel, can we obviously go back to why you wanted to get into sport and obviously progress into teaching and then going on to what the role you're currently doing at the moment? Okay, uh, well, as a brief sort of history, uh, I always enjoyed being in school. I was lucky to have some sort of maybe key role models and key figures sort of growing up, family who were always interested in sport and particularly rugby. So uh, as time moved on, I played rugby, involved in coaching rugby and uh, went to uh, UIC at the time uh, to train to become a, a PE teacher. Following that, uh, I went out and coached and taught in, in Australia for a year and came back and was a PE teacher for 10 years. And uh, really, I suppose, without wanting to sound too cheesy, having had some really good experiences in school, I wanted to try and perhaps give those opportunities back to, to students in the future. And uh, while doing that, I moved through my coaching qualifications and uh, been lucky enough to to coach at Cardiff Metropolitan and just recently taken over as director of rugby there and and also been really lucky to be involved in the national age grade setup with Wales. So it's been a really exciting time, you know, quite a varied, um, varied range of experiences, right from teaching three, four-year-olds PE through to, um, you know, hopefully some future elite internationals. And obviously you've co- you, you're coached, you've taught out in Australia and obviously be back, back in the UK. Is there kind of an overlap or is there certain aspects you've taken from your role out in Australia that you've brought back? Well, I, the one thing I was uh, really looking forward to was the weather. Um, but what was a big surprise to me was, uh, in fact, it actually gets too hot. And sometimes you have to stay indoors, not because of the snow like over here, but because it gets too hot, which was uh, interesting out there. Oh, I think they've got a really interesting view to health and well-being over in Australia. I think by the nature of the weather, they're perhaps a bit more of an active, uh, active nation. And uh, they probably have a clearer attitude towards sport. And I think it's probably a bigger part of the family makeup. I think perhaps with the weather over here and certainly um, social media and sort of uh, computer games and things, certainly from my experience, I've seen there's a difference out there. There's definitely a bigger focus on sport and health and well-being out there. And obviously, off there, we spoke a little bit about my perception on obviously P and its role within the structure in Britain. Can can you elaborate, obviously, to the listeners, what is your take on its role, obviously, now and possibly going forward, with obviously, this, what you could term it, an epidemic in terms of obesity? I think it's got a, you know, a huge role to play 
certainly within Wales, it'll be interesting to see what happens now as a result of the Donaldson report and the review that's going into the curriculum there to see where PE fits with health and well-being uh, will be certainly a, a, a very interesting aspect. But, but PE, whether you term it PE or health and well-being, is going to be vital. I think, um, I think the important thing to, see, to say is whether, whether it's PE, whether it's health and well-being, the role of the teacher, the role of the coach, if we can get teachers who can be more empowering uh, and really have a focus on um, making students task-focused, valuing them in the environment, we can have a huge impact. Some of the research that we've done uh, with questionnaires and observations within the, the Sport Wales project that you alluded to in the introduction has shown that um, when, when teachers are empowering, that will lead to higher psychological well-being. It will lead to more motivated students. And it certainly shows that there's certainly room for improvement. Uh, the data collected has shown that um, where teachers are disempowering, it will lead to dropout and it will lead to perhaps poorer psychological well-being. So moving forward, education around this idea of motivational climate and, and the role that can play in PE is paramount to maybe combating that, that epidemic you talked to, talked about earlier. And obviously you, you kind of alluded to that point, Daniel, that obviously I think it overlaps now with the, you could call it, I wouldn't say a tre- trend or a fad because I think it's there for the long run with obviously that, that mindset aspect in terms of fitness. But what you were saying, obviously, kind of challenging the kids to, to well, more so the teachers to say, well, why is this person acting out? Why, why are they kind of doing that thing as opposed to they're not enjoying the subject? I suppose that I think that comes back to, I think, um, there's a misconception around sort of motivation and, and what motivation actually is. And again, this idea that we can perhaps educate teachers and coaches to understand that motivation is really easy to see in terms of whether people are high in motivation or low in motivation. You see that in their visible actions. You can see that the way they turn up for PE, they've always got their kit. They're always excited. They always want to please the teacher, all those sorts of things. As well as you can see those students who are low in motivation, who perhaps are disengaged, um, perhaps don't bring their kit, don't want to participate. But all that tells us is whether they're high in motivation or low in motivation. I suppose the real interesting thing is the quality of motivation. And that comes back to the point you made around the why. And, you know, that, that comes from some theory, that comes from achievement goal theory and self-determination theory, really starting to understand the why of motivation, I think, is really important moving forward for teachers and coaches and something that we can train and develop in our practice. And this is one we didn't, we didn't actually look at, Daniel. Um, obviously, I'm a quite laid-back individual, so you, I would probably class myself somewhere in between, like in the middle. What would you do for an individual in that case? Because I would say I'd probably be in terms of bringing my kit all the time. I'd be obviously highly motivated from that aspect. But sometimes I would be, depending on what it would be doing, I might be the opposite. So how would you kind of deal with that kind of situation? I think there's a couple of things to think about is um, this idea of um, motivation, motivational climate is constantly changing and it's impacted on by 
things all the time. It could be family, it could be your peers, it could be the choice of activity in that P lesson. So you, you might not enjoy rugby, but you love volleyball. Now, my role as a teacher is I might never get you to intrinsically love rugby, but when we're doing that activity, how can I make you value it a little bit more? How can I make you understand the importance of that activity, maybe relate it into your own context? So, for instance, I might be able to get you a little bit more motivated in rugby by suggesting some of the transference and skills from what we're doing in this lesson here on rugby, perhaps into your own performance in, in volleyball, starting to show you the links between the two. And I suppose that underpins everything, is treating, treating them as an individual, starting to understand what makes them tick, that why again, coming back to that why, and really starting to take other people's perspective. We talked about this off air about how one of the most important things teachers and coaches can do is try to, to take the student's perspective try to take the player's perspective in their, in their understanding and their performance, to start to really understand them, to give them appropriate levels of challenge uh, and try to develop and, and foster their ability in that way. But then, Daniel, in terms of, say, for the likes of rugby, would you, would you not argue that anybody that is involved in a team sport aren't the skills overlapping because you need those facets so we use communication as the example well you need that in every team sport so that one is you've kind of got no excuse I can I, I could kind of see where the teachers come in from or we need to work on this but I don't know how you'd look it for, look it at it from a perspective of the student because obviously the teacher in that aspect if you're not communicating it makes everything else more difficult yeah, absolutely. And again, I think, uh, you know, you, you look at communication and I suppose I, one of the things I, you know, you always share as a teacher or coach is you need to communicate more. You need to speak more. Um, we're not talking as a team. But actually what we've done there is say, you know, what the problem is. Again, we haven't looked at why the problem's happening. So again, this comes back to another thing is we've got to have sort of specific detail around those sorts of things. So, um why aren't we communicating in this setting? How are we going to develop strategies to enable communication? How can we transfer communication here off the field, you know, from a, maybe a maths lesson, from group work in, um, in the classroom onto the field? You know, how can we be specific to our sports? And, you know, there's nothing that probably gets on my nerves when a coach calls everybody in and says, right, we've got to talk more. You're not communicating. Right, back out, communicate more. But then as a coach, I'd argue, or as a teacher, have we given them the skills to be able to communicate more? So we're actually asking them to do something which they don't have the capacity to do, which could actually be quite disempowering and lead them to being low in motivation. Whereas actually our job there is, is to bring them in to maybe give them those skills to um, be able to communicate effectively, which might allow them to transfer between sports or, or even the classroom. But obviously, could we, not for argument's sake, say this generation have more problems with that because they're on their, well, we'll say electronic device, no matter what that is. And then obviously that is the root cause of the problem. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's twofold. I think we've got to try to um, 
we've got to try to bring them out of the, that setting and make them more comfortable communicating. So again, we've got to develop those sorts of things, a strategy we use in lectures and, and rugby problem-based learning where we're, you know, quite demanding on the students to uh, communicate more effectively is one strategy that we use. Um, but I also think we've got to find ways to um, react to what the students want. We've got to value their choice, value their opinions in the environment. How can we bring IT into the lessons, IT into our coaching, so that we're starting to identify with things that they do and things that perhaps they're interested in. Again, taking their perspective, valuing their opinions, relating to them might actually allow us to develop those empowering environments, which will lead to them being more motivated and develop those skills. So from what you're saying, Daniel, and this is maybe an assumption a little bit, maybe more so towards primary education and secondary, there's that misconception that you could say from a teacher's perspective, the kids don't know what they kind of don't, they they do as as they're told because they can't think for themselves. And I'm not I'm not general. That's probably try not to generalize that that sense that statement too much. I think sometimes as teachers and as coaches, we um, we assume too much. Uh, we we you know people only know what they know. So if uh, if a group of students haven't been taught effectively how to work as a group, yet you ask them to do group work and they don't do it very well, well then perhaps your role as a teacher is to foster an environment where they want to work together as a group rather than saying, oh, they're being disruptive, they're not listening. Well, actually, if we taught them how to work effectively as a group, have we empowered them to feel like that they can grow in that environment? So I think that goes back to your, your point. Students, players, whatever you want, they only know what they know. Part of our job as a teacher is to scaffold their learning, is to take them through those uh, those different stages, making sure that they constantly are task focused, constantly feel like they've got voice and choice, they're related to, and you try to make them feel competent. If you do those things in any environment, uh, you'll develop well-motivated or people moving across that continuum of motivation to that sort of more autonomous motivation that you're looking for. However, that's not easy. Well, I think I think one way of probably doing it is obviously from the tertiary education point of view, you are in, all in the same boat as freshers, and we'll say for the Americans, freshmen, because you're all new. You don't, in most cases, what we'll say, we'll use the American model because they're less likely to know everybody, but maybe in Britain you might know one or two people. But it, it, give, it, it makes, it, I won't say it gives you that opportunity, it makes you obviously come out of your comfort zone because you have to get to know people, and every, but everybody is on that same wavelength in terms of they're in a new environment. So well, I've got, I've got to speak to people. To, so I got, so I get to know them and see how they cl- click and can kind of go up and kind of go from there. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so a strategy that we've actually used this year at the rugby club with our, our freshers or our freshmen is, uh, it's very normal and it's probably been very traditional to have fresher trials the first week people arrive. Well, you know, for some people, that can actually be quite a stressful time in a stressful environment with a lot of pressure on that environment. So one of the things that we've done is taken the fresher trials out of any, anything that we're doing, anything that we're talking about. And we actually, you know, we're taking a games-based approach to our training. We're doing more training sessions, more games-based training, 
you know, trying to uh, use adaptive games to improve their ability. So the first thing they're hit with is not us trying to assess how good they are or not good they are and put them in different levels. Is actually just say, no, no, we're invested on making you, A, enjoy yourselves. B, we want to improve you, each and every one of you individually. And we'll worry about what team you're in and, and where you're in at a later date so that their initial first two or three weeks of uh, rugby at university is one, hopefully, that's based on enjoyment, developing better players, and um, loads of people participating, not one based on trials, hierarchy, first-team players uh, looking down on freshers and trying to take that away from it. And another strategy we've used is we've used our first-team players to actually run those coaching sessions. So they're developing their skills as coaches, seeing some of the problems that we face as coaches coaching them, but also uh, getting them to really embed themselves within the environment as well. Well, I think from first-hand experience, it's 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 very difficult at times because you're thinking, "Oh, I I, I can do this," uh, and I think I've got better at it because you, you. I think people will say to me, "Oh, this, wouldn't there be some red mist coming out the top of your head?" Thinking, "Well, no, because they're in some cases younger; they might not comprehend it as well." So you've got to give them a little bit of leeway in that case and, and maybe explain it in a different way and maybe walk them through it as opposed to maybe with a senior player who's been playing a long time, you could criticise them and say, well, why did you do that when you know, you know better? But what's lovely about the example that you've just used there is the way that you've talked about, well, you know, you've been quite self-reflective there and you've thought, well, perhaps if this didn't work, perhaps you'd have to look at the way that you were explaining things and that you would, and I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, Too often we tell pupils or we tell players uh, and once we've told it to them, we assume they know it. And then, you know, you'll be sat on the side of the field or you'd be sat in a P lesson and you're going, well, I've told them that. And actually, just because you've told them something doesn't mean that they A, understand it, B, they can replicate it, or C, they can replicate it under pressure. And so perhaps as coaches and teachers, we've got to develop these skills, different pedagogies to be able to um, deliver things in a variety of ways to allow people to develop at appropriate levels. Well, it all comes back to that knowledge base, doesn't it, Daniel, in terms of how does the person comprehend that information? And obviously there's going to be different – how they take on board information is going to change from person to person. For me, a coach can tell me any number of ways and I can comprehend it any, whichever way he wants to do it. But that's – maybe that's because I was at the level. You, you kind of learn as you go along, well, this works with me, this works with me. And you, you pick each one. Okay, I might be better suited at one style of coaching than the other, but they could give me that information in whichever one they want to, and, and I can comprehend. Whereas for some people, that won't always work. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's, again, the skill of a, a good practitioner is their ability to um, understand their athletes, get to know their athletes, get to know their pupils in a school environment, and be able to tailor the the needs of the session, tailor the needs of the individual uh, and map those together so that, uh, you know, ultimately your goal is that everybody improves, everybody gets better, everybody enjoys themselves. 
But I think I, I like that analogy that you used earlier on, and it might have been off air as well. It's looking at obviously the the work ethic as opposed to the ability. I think it's probably which, in terms of I I pose this question to you, which is the easier of the two to actually visually see? Yeah. So I, I think um, I think when we were talking off air, the, the the way that we did it is. Um, you know, one of the strategies that, that we're talking about and we, if we learned about it, is sort of uh, as a teacher, or as a coach, uh, valuing things like effort, commitment, energy, um, rather than uh, those things that are talent-based. Now, somebody might always have a certain level of ability or maybe um, not as able, but they can all work as hard. And so if we value effort if we value work rate, if we value all the things that require zero talent, then um, you know, I, I think that can go some way to inspiring everybody at all levels to work hard. Whereas if I'm focused purely on people who perform the skill well, then who make good decisions, well, then I'm valuing only a certain, certain number of people within that environment. I've got to be seen to the team, to the pupils in a lesson that I'm interested in them all. So, you know, I'm interested in them all and I can value them all for their work rate. I can't value them all for the ones that only make good decisions because not all of them will. So, yeah, certainly a strategy that we try to use. And I think also my, my coach gave a good analogy of that as well because he was saying if you've got a t- the talent, obviously when they're uh, – and it's probably used me as the example now – if you're not at working at the optimum intensity or effort, if you've got the talent, it's more visible than say somebody that's got least ta- less talent and work and not doing as well because obviously you can see well this is what level you're supposed to be operating at, and this is what he's choosing to work at, and you, and it, and, it, and you can pick it off straight away. Yeah, I think you're right, and you know I suppose. It- what I find really interesting about this sort of subject area, this, this topic, is that all the research that you know, we've conducted in a PE setting with Sport Wales, Birmingham and, and, and Cardiff Met sort of suggests on a teaching front that um, teachers are not as empowering as they could be and they do engage in disempowering behaviours. So we say stuff now like, um, you know, value the pupil, voice and choice, make them feel connected. Uh, make them task focused and it sounds really easy but actually doing it and delivering it is something that needs training it needs practice it's not something that'll happen it's not a tick list it's not something that you can go if I do a b c and d I'm gonna have a perfect session this is something that you need to practice and really cultivate in your practice and not only is that shown up in the research with teaching it's, it's, it's the same, Birmingham have done a lot of research with coaches as well. It's exactly the same there. While it sounds an easy concept, actually putting it into practice is something that takes training, education and practice. But in terms of the learning process, Daniel, wouldn't you say that the actual practitioners are on a back foot to start with because be it the PGC is only a year and you are coaching your peers. So obviously they, they to a certain extent know know the um uh, the sport they obviously the motor the neuromotor function obviously is a lot better than a child as as an adult so it's it's very much difficult to then go into a school environment and then that's 
obviously put into practice what you've learned? So this is threefold for me then. So if you think of primary PGCE uh, and we think about PE, they do something like eight hours of PE in the year. (laughs) And then they have to go out and become a primary school teacher and then teach PE. Wow. So that's the first thing. If you're a secondary PE teacher, yeah, you do need loads of technical and sports-specific knowledge. But what training do PGCE uh, cohorts currently have on motivation, motivational strategies, empowering, disempowering behaviours, little or none? And then if you look at a coaching perspective and you look at the UKCC coaching certificates, which are very much competency-based and tick box, Mm. do they prepare people for the uh, messy, complex nature of coaching, teaching, understanding motivation, the why uh, taking other people's perspective. You know, we're asking people to do a lot. Is the training that's currently out there uh, fit for purpose? I would say no. I, I'd agree with you. But what could you do to make it better? Because if I use the the coaching as the example now, uh, I've done level one in two different sports, and obviously I was doing the sports so I was able to comprehend it, obviously, at a lot higher level because I'm playing the sport. But for most people coming off the street, that knowledge isn't going to be there. So they're going to still work at a basic level. So if you're trying to t- uh, teach people that are a multitude of levels in a coaching session, you're going to struggle. So I think, um, I think we've got to go back a few steps. And um, you know, if you think... A, the curriculum of a, so a PGC program, uh, of a, a primary PGC program on a teaching front of you, and uh, from a UKCC perspective, I think we've got to go back to, um, you know, uh, the national governing bodies and talk about what they want from a coaching perspective. We've got to go back to, um, you know, the Donaldson Review in Wales. We've got to go back to the and really start to assess what, what skills what attributes, what things do teachers actually need, what do coaches actually need to be able to foster environments that are going to make people uh, psychologically you know, happy, good well-being. They're going to make people motivated to take part in sport and physical activity, and they're going to develop high-quality learning environments. Those are the things that we should be trying to base our sort of uh, fundamentally the teaching of our teachers and coaches on um, possibly not competency-based assessments. But then does the, the kind of the co-curriculum need to be torn up and started again? Because obviously, as we, touch, we we've touched upon off-air, it's all result-based. And like you were saying, PE is not even in the discussion. Yeah, I think uh, you know for for PE to be uh, we, we for PE to be valued in an environment, it needs to be given the importance. You know, so for instance instance in Wales as literacy and numeracy framework if we really value the physical education you know one of the only subjects where you can learn to be physical which is a huge part of everybody's existence or a significant part of everybody's existence surely we have to value the body and the mind uh, and in reality when you focus just on the academic side of things and we don't value the the, the body we're as a culture, as a society, making a big statement on the things that we do value. Is it any wonder we have an ever-increasing 
obesity epidemic when currently in schools, in education, in the government, in sport, we don't place enough importance on that. So, yeah, moving forward, there has to be some fundamental changes and placing importance on PE in a school environment will mean that head teachers will value it more, will be able to fund it more, will be able to uh, look at the research around it more and fundamentally will have an improved uh, product. But then obviously this looking at it from a negative perspective now, Daniel, do you think it's been shunned to the outside because of all these people that have had bad experiences with it then? Well, you know, again, I, I, I can't, I can't answer that without perhaps looking at the, uh, the actual research around that or the data around it. You know, my perception on it is that there are, you know, as we've said, there are plenty of people who are not having uh, an empowering, motivationally uh, positive experience of school PE. So, yeah, ultimately, their, their lifelong physical literacy journey is going to be impacted by that. The choices and the decisions they make moving forward will ultimately be impacted by their experiences from school, from coaches, from teachers. So, yeah, that, that, undoubtedly that is going to have an impact, which is why moving forward we know uh, learning about the why, understanding motivation more, understanding the motivational climate more, understanding how to develop sustained mental health, uh, well-being, develop positive learning environments. These are things that fundamentally are going to impact on the next 10 to 20 years. So training around these issues is 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 very important and obviously we've had that crossover with obviously you could say english and math coming into math uh, coming into pe sorry could other subjects obviously not reciprocate and have pe go the other way in terms well, I think of some what of the um, i certainly some of the you know and i you know i've recently spent time in uh you know, Caddickson Primary School in Barry, and to see the way that they're embedding um, sort of PE and health and well-being uh, across all the subject areas, and and similarly uh, schools in uh, you know the John Cross School in Newport, where they're using maths, and a lot of the examples they're drawing upon might be utilising um, sport and things that are going to engage students within the maths lessons. Has certainly had. Uh, you know, great positive effects on the students. So, yeah, I think this is something where literacy and numeracy should be in PE. Absolutely. We communicate, we use numbers in PE. So, yeah, definitely. But in the same way, can we in maths, can we in history, can we in geography, can we utilise health and well-being, not just sport, the whole package of health and well-being, to, uh, to really cultivate this uh, and future-proof generations in the future to, to really try and enhance people on their physical literacy journey. Well, it only makes sense because of the, the the kids are disengaged anyway. Be it, I, I won't say generalise. I was like, majority of people they're gonna switch off because they find oh, you could say the subject to be a bit boring, a little bit mundane. But if you can relate it, maybe not entirely to say health and well-being and sport, but maybe generalise it to day-to-day living and then obviously the kids can maybe relate. Well, this is what's going to happen in real life as opposed to this fixed structure uh, this is how it is it's black and white whereas maybe you could chuck a bit chuck a bit of gray in there and, and and that's how life is and, and i think that's what 
I think Donaldson's hoping uh, is going to come out of the review, perhaps this less linear approach to uh, subject areas. And, you know, by the same token, you know, it mustn't just be uh, sport, health and well-being in other lessons, because that'll only engage and uh, grab certain people's attention. You know, we've got to make sure that we connect with students, we listen to students, you know, pupil voice, and we find the things that they're really interested in. And we use those to embed throughout the curriculum. Oh, it's a difficult one because obviously I've gone into that teaching environment as well more recently. And I'm probably of that nature, maybe probably because of my sports psychology background at university. I'm more inclined to ask kids, well, why do you like this subject? What, What kind of makes you tick? Whereas I think maybe the old school teachers will say, well, you're naughty in this because you don't like it. But then it's trying to maybe ask the why is as, because I think one of the kids said to me he likes English. Well, for me personally, that would not be one of my favourite subjects at school. But that's, per, that's personal, like you were saying, it's, that's personal preference. But, but what I love about that, the strategy that you know, you've just talked about there is, so because you've uh, made the decision to be interested in that student that you spoke to, because you've shown willingness to engage with them and you've found out something about them. Uh, So in this instance, it was the student writes English. Then when you're walking down the corridor or when you're in the P lesson and you can refer back to that, straight away you've driven a connection with that student. Now that might be a student who doesn't love PE, but because you have shown an interest in them, you've taken their perspective, you've grabbed something that they're interested in and, and made reference to it at a later date and asked them how their English left, or whatever it is, straight away that connection that you've built is going to get you that little hook into them to maybe get a little bit more out of them in your P lesson maybe uh, or, you know, in your coaching environment. So again, for me, that's a lovely example of, of those sort of empowering principles in practice. But would it be in that case, Daniel, then shouldn't teachers take a leaf out of say, um, I can't say sports coaching, but say ones that have done sports science and have that, that kind of nature and obviously be reflective on what they do and, and kind of say, well, where can I improve on my lesson to get the kids more engaged and maybe involved? Well, what's interesting, I think, for me, are, are sort of around these sort of motivational psychology, motivational climates and principles is that they, they're transferable across... Um, teaching, coaching youth sport, coaching elite sport. You know, I've certainly seen, uh, I've been lucky enough to, to work in sort of elite coaching environments. I've been lucky enough to see that in practice and see the same principles that are working in a P lesson along these sorts of lines, the transference into a coaching environment. Um, so, you know, going back to your question, I, I think it's about, finding these strategies, taking from sports science, taking from uh, the appropriate knowledge fields and just making sure that we uh, embed our learning environments with these strategies to get the best out of students, pupils, you know, um, elite athletes, young athletes. I think it, it covers the whole spectrum. But then does it come back to, obviously teachers have got to do some sort of progression through their careers, obviously to show improvement, but should they not maybe come back to it and look at it from, uh, we'll say from a coaching perspective, obviously you're always reflecting from session to session and doing it that way. Obviously, how can I make 
make myself better, make the lesson more interesting, and uh, and kind of going it in that facet as opposed to going year by year. I don't think um, I don't think what you've said there in terms of reflecting from session to session is something that just coaches can and should do. You know, I think that's just good practitioners, be that teachers, coaches, whatever uh, role that you take. Uh, the ability to be a reflective practitioner and, you know, be quite honest with uh, an appraisal on, on what you've done and really think about how the, the strategies you've used and what you've done in your lessons, your coaching sessions. Uh, I think that's a vital part of uh, developing. And, I, you know, I think if you if you get this idea of a reflective practitioner, you link it together with things like the motivational climate and start to think around these things I think it could be quite powerful in what can happen to your own practice but do you think personally that the people that don't do that are kind of set in their ways in terms of their you could say old school I think what we've got to do is um, whether it's through continuing professional development or whether it's through uh, the new teach coaches coming out there what we've got to do is just keep, keep banging the drum. Now, I might not, I'm not going to change somebody overnight, especially people who are certainly set in their ways, but I can only control the controllables. So, you know, I can chip away at those people who are existing teachers and coaches with this information and, and keep getting out there. And then we've got to embed this, uh, this information into our teacher development programs, our coach development programs, to ensure that the the new, the younger generation going out there um, have this knowledge embedded within their practice and the existing teachers and coaches get a little bit better day by day, week by week, year by year. I like talking to one of the British basketball coaches a few weeks, well, you probably got a few weeks ago. I think obviously what you've touched upon there, Daniel, is probably a good point because obviously that we've got this long-term athletic development plan Well, he was probably emphasizing more on what needs to be done is a long-term coaching plan is that and obviously that's probably what you've touched upon there it's probably you could put it over into teaching as well and having that quote-unquote not that short outcome goal it's obviously if different people are going to progress at different stages and, and looking at it that way yeah, and I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. You know, if you want to um, if you want to invest in your pupils, if you want to invest in your players, well, invest in how well you look after your teachers and coaches. Invest in how well you uh, give them knowledge, give them skills, develop them in your program. So if I'm ahead in a school, I'm thinking about, well, if I invest in developing my teachers, that's going to have a positive effect on the the pupils similarly in a coaching environment you know I've been very lucky you know at the Welsh Rugby Union where they've really tried to invest in their national age group coaches giving them opportunities to go and work in other environments where your uh, the skills and the knowledge that you learn you can bring back and it really quite reinvigorates you into uh, continuing to develop your practice well you can probably go one step further than that it makes you a more balanced individual yeah, if you, if you go out there, I was lucky enough to go to Canada last year and see how they work within their age group settings. And that was fantastic being able to reflect on what they do, what we do, take some of the good bits that they do and bring it back into our environment, but also hopefully disseminate some of the good stuff that we go and uh, we do here into their program. 
Well, it's a, a little bit of a collaborative effect, really. It's trying to... I touched talking to the, um, another guest today about um, more so with American sports. They're very much got that kind of blinkers on. If they're going to do any research, we're going to keep it in-house so we can make ourselves better. Whereas opposed to if you did it as a collaborative, from more from probably a research perspective, you're going to get more data, you're going to have a better understanding, and you can help more people, which I think maybe within health and well-being, I think at times we probably shy away from that and think about ourselves and don't think of the collective and, and what the greater good can be. Well, I think we were very lucky, you know, flipping back to that, that, that P setting where the, the collaborative research project that Sport Wales, Birmingham University and, and Cardiff Met did together. I think one of the beauties of that sort of collaboration was that you had the, the knowledge of the motivational climate and the motivational theory from, you know, the likes of Joan Dugan and Paul Appleton to widely respected researchers from the University of Birmingham. You put that together with some of the uh, applied practitioners, the physical literacy research that's gone on at Cardiff Met and the access to the, the schools linked together with some funding from Sport Wales really brought, brought about, you know, sort of a quite exciting project. Well, it makes a change. They're looking at, well, we won't, we won't, I won't kick Sport Wales when it's down, but it makes a change that elite sport does something for the grassroots at times. Yeah, well, you know, certainly within within this setting and this, uh, it was certainly something that, again, you know, came up with some really interesting uh, data around sort of the research around motivational climate and empowering and disempowering behaviours and just reinforced this idea that um, while coaches are empowering, they can be more and we can do more to develop their empowering motivational climates and unfortunately, there are still coaches and teachers who are disempowering and we need to reduce those behaviours. So, you know, that's what the research shows. It's now just about us actioning that and developing people and coaches who can uh, deliver on that. Well, does it come back to probably the underlying issue here, Daniel, that it's the language people use and maybe looking at it from the, the perspective of the other person well, you could say on the receiving end and looking at their, their kind of their perspective and then reflecting on it probably before you've said it, which is not always the easiest thing to do. So some of the training um, that uh, I received from Birmingham University, they, they, they run a, you know, a fantastic coaching program with the Empowering Coaching Project linked to this. Is One of the things they focus on there is the language that you use. And it's only when you start to... Um, reflect on it, video your sessions and you start to pick up on uh, some of the words that you use and this is what I come back to in terms of it's not a it's not a it's not a tick list it's not something that's going to happen overnight changing your practice developing your practice is something that you got to a want to invest in and b want to do and, and language is a big factor in that and, you know the way that you speak to pupils the way that you speak to your players the 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 results of that are hugely significant uh, from from a motivational perspective. But I think it happens back to those two words, isn't it? Reflective practice. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I've certainly seen that, um, uh, you know, in a, in both a coaching and a PE setting where the relationships you build, the, the language you, you use can have a really 
important effect on on those play you know so those players so in 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 that Wales 18 environment uh, if if the the words you use are based around pressure and outcome and the result uh, that can have a really significant impact on their performance whereas if you can focus those elite athletes to be process orientated task orientated on what builds a good performance ultimately they'll perform better, especially if you focus on that in training and you trust that. You know, I'll give you an example. If Wales 18s played England 18s for the next um, 10 years, by the very nature of the resource and the number of, uh, the number of players that England have over Wales, then naturally England should beat Wales every year. And if we measure ourselves on that, on whether Wales beat England or not, we might not be doing any favours to our players because what we should be doing is measuring them on the things that we talked about earlier, effort, work rate, things, the non-negotiables, the things that can have a huge impact on their performance and not necessarily worry about that end result. And I think by us paying real focus on developing performance, developing process, uh, developing task-focused athletes, that, that undoubtedly will lead to greater success. And that mirrors itself in a, in a PE perspective when I'm not trying to develop uh, elite athletes in a PE setting. I'm trying to develop people who want to have a lifelong love of physical activity. So I do that by focusing on things that um, aren't about how good they are in PE, but how hard they work, investing in them as people, giving them opportunities for voice and choice, all those things that develop a, an empowering learning environment. Well, I think you do. You raise a good argument there, Daniel. In terms of it is instilling people, obviously, that those well, you could say lifelong skills that you're going to need on the outside once you come out of school, and you're going to need for life. Uh, and I, I, I think I, I say this maybe happens maybe back to the, the the sporty ones and obviously the high achievers, the ones that have aspirations of maybe reaching the high levels of professional sport. Is thinking well. In most cases, if you haven't made it into an academy or whatever it may be of that nature, by I would say from maybe early stages of secondary school, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, you know, we're, we're framing that on everything being important around uh, whether or not they make it or not. Whereas, you know, I think as people involved in, in schools, involved in PE, involved in elite sport, have to take a, a holistic view of this. I'm not trying to, with a Wales 18s player or a, or a child in school, I'm not trying to just develop a performer. I'm trying to develop a person. I'm trying to develop an academic as well as a performer, as well as a, a physical preparation we're trying to develop that 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 whole holistic viewpoint and i think we've got a responsibility to do that so if at any stage somebody falls out of that academy program they're resilient enough to know they've developed skills that are going to be useful across a number of different settings what they've learned in performance sport can actually offer them some skills within uh, whatever they go on to do in the future in the same way that person who drops out of an academy might then go back into a university pathway, have the opportunity to develop, because you mentioned the word long-term athlete development, and a lot of the team 
sports that I'm involved in, a lot of the things, you know, lifelong activity. It's a, a long-term approach. So if that's what we truly mean, then we want to develop people first. You know, I know the All Blacks talk about it all the time. They're on about developing people, developing good habits, developing good people, not just developing good rugby players. And, you know, while I'm sure they don't always get that right, that's a great philosophy to be be utilising within your own practice. But does it not come back to culture then that if we've got this ethos to a certain degree that if you don't make it uh, on the first step you're going to fall by the way and give up in times whereas maybe people coaches athletes teachers etc look at it from a, obviously that pathway there's going to, you're going to come in at different stages and you, you, you do have okay you may not get all the way to the very top but it's getting as far as you can. And I think if I use my example, and I've kind of gone 360 now, I probably put all my basket, all my eggs in one basket at sport and obviously went to university. And university was kind of an afterthought to some degree because it was, I was taught in about 15, 16 at sport, well, you need to have a backup because it can be gone in an instant. So I think university is like, hmm, well, I get, but I thought probably negatively. I was a, I'd say above average student, fairly, fairly academic. Probably could have been a little bit more so if I, I'd have let it be on par with the sport. But I never thought I'd get there. And I think once I got into the university environment, I was like, well, sport has got me in the back door to some to some degree. There's some truth in that. But let me prove that I'm academically sound to be able to succeed and let my obviously work speak for itself as opposed to sport. And what I teach kids nowadays is, okay, you may have aspirations to compete, uh, compete, compete, um, uh, what would be the word? Excel at a professional level of sport. Okay. That's maybe like we've happened to did say maybe a wrong way of looking at things is maybe, okay, let's utilise sports to get you further in, in life and obviously look at it more, not as that long-term athlete development, but more so long-term outlook on life. Sport is going to be, I don't know what the, the say, it might be, if you're lucky, it might be 10, 15 years. In most cases, never. it's probably going to be a lot shorter than that. But looking to put in place you're obviously putting more emphasis on your education. So using your sport, maybe the model that the Americans have obviously with the sports scholarship and we touched upon a little bit off air is utilizing the sport to get you to the education, getting your degree. And now you're set up for the next, say the, the later part of your life. I think that's where, yes, you know, it comes back to, I think we've got to treat people as individuals. So what works for you might not work for the next person. And I think as a teacher and as a coach, I've got to understand that. And I've got to try to, um, you know, potentially use different strategies. How you felt about sport might be something that I could utilize to increase your motivation, whereas somebody else who didn't feel like that, I might have to try and find a different way of, of motivating them and, and trying to draw out those positives. But, yeah, fundamentally, I think um, we've got to want to, as practitioners, we've got to want to develop people holistically, We've got to want to develop everybody on their physical literacy journey. 
You know, I know a lot of work has been conducted at university at Cardiff Met now around that. I think that's an important facet to look at. But I think importantly, we've got to understand uh, every individual matters. And however we get that across, it's very easy in a class of 30 or a class of, uh, or a, a group of 30 players for people not to get that sense, for people to get that sense they're just one of a crowd. You know, I think what we've got to do, and it's, and this is why the job of a teacher and a coach is quite all-consuming, it's quite, it can be hard, is because if we truly adhere to those sort of principles, getting to know people on an individual level, it's hard. It takes a lot out of you. It, you're asking people to uh, really invest in people to try to, to grow and to, to develop those uh, students, players, athletes, pupils along the way. Well, I think you raise a good point there, Daniel, because obviously knowing how the person ticks, it's, it, you're obviously from a, maybe we've used the sporting analogy now, it's, use, it's knowing what buttons to push and obviously what, how they respond to certain facets of, of obviously language and body language. Yeah, I think it comes back to something we were talking about earlier, I think, I think also off there, was, you know, we, we always say to players uh, or pupils, you, you tell them something and then you don't understand why they don't do it in the game or they don't do it in the P lesson. And you're like, well, I've told them that. You know, why, why didn't we kick it then? I've told them to kick it there. Or, um, you know, I've, I've shown them how to do that layup in the P lesson. And because we've told them it, sometimes maybe even demonstrated it, we assume that everybody should be able to do it. But then, again, we only know what we know. We only pick things up in certain ways. And some people need uh, to be told things. Some people need to be shown things. Some people to experience it. Some people need games-based approaches, adaptive games. There's all these things out there. And again, it's only by truly knowing the group that you've got, knowing how to pitch things, um, taking their perspective, uh, giving them some ownership of the lessons, giving them some ownership of the coaching environment, can we truly empower those individuals to get better? But would you not argue that they're two different things? Because obviously you can, within a coaching session, you've got a little bit more scope for time, whereas with P in a P lesson, you might be constricted by time. And thus you can't, obviously, you can't please everybody, whereas maybe in a sporting sense, you might be able to do a little bit more. I, th- I think that I think that's a, the challenge for me of a PE teacher. PE teacher, one of the, the great difficulties they've got is how do you have a different ability group of 30 students and how do you please everybody? So for me, it's control the controllables. You know, tell them that at the start of the lesson. Tell them, guys, girls, you know, whoever it is, uh, this is the focus of the lesson today. But, you know, I, I understand it's difficult for me to challenge you all. These are the ways I'm going to go about it. So, you know, give them a rationale for what happens in your P lesson. Don't be afraid to say it's hard to do these things. I think, I think pupils, children, players respond to you. You don't have to pretend you know everything. You know, I think that's another thing that we fall into as coaches and teachers. We feel we have to sort of show off as if, give off this performance that we know everything. Whereas in reality, 
we probably know very little, or we know a little bit about this huge thing. Um, and sometimes pupils can actually appreciate the fact that if you, if you show that you don't know everything, that might be a way of sometimes, as a strategy, bringing them in to, to an environment. Same with your players. Uh, certainly if I go into the Wales 18s and pretend I know loads about the line the scrum, they'd laugh at me. You know, so with the other coaches, because the players would know more than me. That's okay, you know, and, and uh, being confident enough to, to know that. So you, you're right, it is challenging, but I think that's the responsibility for teachers and coaches is to develop environments where you do try to challenge everybody to the best that you can. That's not to say that you can deliver perfect, individual, bespoke lessons for everyone. You can't, but you can uh, come up with strategies to uh, give them a rationale, take their perspective, give them voice and choice so that they understand and you move in that direction. I, I think you, you brought up a good point there with that, obviously looking at perfection. I think it might be because of university that I, I think this way. Uh, obviously, there's no such thing as perfection. And I think it's maybe because of, uh, with it being looking at research and things like that, sci- science and probably well, not science more specifically, but research in general, there is never a hundred percent study. So I think it's maybe that is maybe my way of thinking. Cause oh, I think, what is it? It's, as long as it's 90% accurate, I think that's as close as you're going to get to perfect within, within research. But I think this notion of perfection in society is, I think it's barbaric because it's like, well, there's no such thing because the goalposts are always going to move. Yeah, you know, it comes back to, uh, you know, what is perfection, you know? So uh, what happens to that team, that, you know, under 11 school football team who's going into a game where they know they're going to lose 11-0? Well, where's your perfection in that? How are you going to motivate that, those group of students? How are you going to get them? And if they're focusing on going out and getting a result against the team they know they're going to lose against, find the teacher... Well, if I get them to focus on a result, I'm only going to demotivate them further. But perhaps I can give them things that they can achieve. Can you make three passes without getting the ball intercepted? You know, can you go for two to three minutes without giving up? A, you know, so there's loads of different ways you can set different targets and goals for groups. But to ask for perfection or to ask for unrealistic uh, success or end results can actually have a really demotivating or disempowering effect. Oh, if we talk even at a high end level, it's 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 you've got a massive target on your back when you're undefeated or this this notion of hundred percent records like oh yeah. That's when that's when people want to knock you off the pedestal. It's like, oh yeah, you think you're all that. Let's let's go out and prove you wrong. So it's a great example, isn't it? You know, focus on uh, keeping your hundred percent record and talk about keeping a hundred percent record and then you lose your next game. Well, probably you'd be better off focusing on what are the things that underpin your successful performance and working on those. Because if you keep working on those, you'll probably carry on being successful. Whereas if you worry about being successful, you know, you, you, you're probably not fit for purpose. And would you say, is that why teams like to get that first loss and then the pressure kind of comes off? Well, again, I think that's up to the, the teacher, the coaches, the the players in the environment to feel comfortable to to not put a goal like um, we're never going to lose a home game or 
we're going to win our first 10 games or, you know, giving yourself goals that are, um, you know, re- result orientated are one thing, but perhaps you're better underpinning your performances with your process goals that hopefully will lead to your outcome goals. But then, obviously, let's get your take on this. I, I, I would believe that culturally and maybe society-wise, we are very much results-driven, probably more so in this day and age than ever before. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, sort of it's a misconception that we probably need to move away from. And, you know, you talked about schools and results and GCSEs and A-levels and assessments and, you know, some of the businesses people go into and the way they're measured and those sorts of things, those sort of results at all cost environments. Um, Yes, they can have success, but that success isn't built on longevity. So, you know, it comes back to what we're talking about, psychological well-being. You know, if you want to develop environments that are going to be successful for long periods of time and are going to constantly have motivated people in their environment, well, a a, a win-at-all-costs results business, assessment-driven culture, isn't going to give you that. That might give you some short-term success, but the sustainability of that culture, the sustainability of that is, you know, theoretically, uh, you know, doesn't hold up. Theoretically, what does hold up is being task-focused, giving people in your environment voice and choice, giving them respect, connecting people, um, making them feel competent. These are the drivers that will lead to longevity, long-term. And I come back to that All Blacks example. That's what they're building their motivational climate, their culture on. And it's no no surprise to me they're having sustained long-term success, albeit with a good talent pool to pull pull from as well. I'm not suggesting they don't. But, uh, you know, definitely for me, your most successful long-term businesses, school environments, coaching environments, base themselves on on those fundamentals. But then this is something we talked about off-air, Daniel. It's very much that that all-black philosophy is probably instilled in their school's rugby from the off. It's, it's, it's probably what everything that they do is built on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a culture, it's a, a society, it can become a way of life. And, you know, certainly... Certainly moving forward, the environments that I'm involved in, uh, I'm certainly going to try these out. I'm certainly going to see how it goes. I'm going to see what, whatever we can do, whether that's in a lecturing uh, capacity, in a coaching, in a teaching capacity. You know, let's give it a go and let's give it some long-term um, aspirations so that we're not changing things after five, ten minutes if something doesn't work. We're going to give something a chance to become sustainable. And my last question before we wrap up the episode, Daniel. If, if you had to summarize this show and this episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Uh, create positive environments that are based on uh, people being task-focused, giving people voice and choice, getting people to be respected and connected and making people feel competent. If we do that, we can be successful and develop people who want to uh, uh, have a lifelong physical literacy journey or become elite sports people.
I think you're the fastest, one of the fastest people to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed tonight and it's, it's really been, uh, you know, insightful for me and to listen to some of your stories both on and off air. It's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a real pleasure, so thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Daniel. So once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short written review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.